0: Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water. To support women as leaders in the conservation movement. To ensure
1: the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation.
2: Howdy, Artemis. This is Ashley Chance. Last year marked the start of Artemis' tactics series. We did turkey tactics in the spring and fly-fishing tactics in the fall. It was like a virtual boot camp for those of us new to these disciplines. We brought in experts who were gracious enough to share their time and incredible expertise with everyone. They shared generously and humorously and it was so gratifying watching some of you get your first turkeys after turkey tactics. Just warms my heart. Today we want to share with you our turkey tactics webinar from last spring. It features Mary Lynn, Pat Dorsey, Kathy Stevens, and Emily Lettergerber as our experts. They're some of the most accomplished turkey hunters we know, and combined have more than 100 years of turkey hunting experience. A quick footnote before we hit play. If the Artemis Tactics programs have meant anything to you, please consider a donation to help support more of that programming. Visit artemis.nwf.org for that. And thank you. We have spin fishing tactics planned for the spring summer and whitetail tactics this fall, which is my self proclaimed specialty. So stay tuned for those. All right, here's the 2021 version of Artemis' Turkey Tactics webinar. Enjoy. All right, we are live. Hey, Pat. So we've got a few folks joining us already. Wonderful to see everybody coming online. Um, I'm Ashley Chance. I am the Southeast Regional Coordinator for the Artemis program. And we're gonna give everybody just a couple minutes to join us here. But we've got two of our presenters tonight joining us. We have Kathy and Pat, and we're so excited to have both of them here. And we have a couple other women that are gonna be speaking as well. Um, So I'm gonna give just a quick intro to Artemis and to Turkey Tactics. For those of you that don't know, uh, Artemis is basically we're a group of bold and passionate sportswomen who are passionate about hunting and angling and really about conservation. So our ultimate goal is to enjoy the resource and also defend it. And um, tonight we are coming together to build some community around turkey hunting. We're so excited. I'm really excited to learn from these women. Um, so I think with that, we've got we've got about half of the folks online that registered for tonight. Um, I want to remind everybody that this will be recorded. So if you have to leave early, no worries. We're going to send out a link with the recording um, just here in the next couple days. I also wanted to take a chance and thank our sponsors. Um, for those of you who were able to purchase a turkey box before they were sold out, Um When it arrives in the mail, you're gonna be really happy because there's some awesome stuff in there. We have a pushpin call from Peglegs Customs and uh, these these links to these products should be showing up in the chat here. Uh, We also have face paint from Nature's Paint and Got Game Tech, National Wild Turkey Federation made some contributions to the boxes. And uh, one of our other presenters who's gonna be hopping on here in a minute Mary Lynn, a special thanks to her um, for helping subsidize the calls that y'all are going to be receiving. So um, thank you to all of those people. I also want to encourage everyone to check out the Slack channel um, that we've created. You should have received a link for that. Um, and it's it's going to be a great place to talk about everything that we go over tonight um, and in the rest of the series. And as just as you're Season progresses, you can troubleshoot things and connect with other women on there. And I would like to give a heads up, we are gonna be having a storytelling contest with some pretty awesome prizes being given away. Uh, That's gonna be at the events in April. Um, So just keep that in mind as you head out into the field this season. Lastly, before I hand it over to our presenters, I would like to ask that everyone type into the chat without hitting enter. Just type into the chat where you're based out of, so the city and state. And then once we get through the presenters introducing themselves, I will say hit enter and then we can have kind of a chatterfall of everybody's location. And we'll also send the chat out to all of you after the meeting. So if you find somebody, <laughs> no worries, Cory. If you find somebody who um, seems to be pretty close to you, maybe y'all could, Uh, have some hunting opportunities together this season. So with that, I think we are ready to jump into our first topic, which um, really we're going to be asking Kathy and Pat to just give us a couple minutes about what they love about turkey hunting, what turkey hunting means to them, and maybe even how y'all got started. So Kathy, will you lead us off?
1: Certainly. Thank you, Ashley. And it's really um, a pleasure to be here with everybody tonight and um, to talk about something that I'm so passionate about. But um, to get started, I started hunting wild turkeys in 1979. And over that period of time, I have missed one season. And it was when my daughter was born two weeks into the season, my older daughter. (laughs) My younger daughter, um, fortunately, was born two months after the season ended, so I was able to hunt while I was pregnant with her. But um, my husband was a big hunter and I was always an outdoors person. And when I met him, he um, was so involved in turkey hunting and he took me with him. And it didn't take me long to fall in love with it simply because it's a beautiful time of the year in the spring season. Um, it's been kind of crisp and cool in the mornings and your face is all crisp but and you can see your breath sometimes and but you're outside in the early morning in the dark and you hear all of these night birds um, you hear owls and whippoorwills and you hear them you know, stop sounding off as much and then you start hearing the cardinals and other day birds and then you hear this gobbler sound off. And it's just, there's something about the sound that says being wild. And for me, just being outside, the the solitude of being out there, the places that I like to hunt, make a big difference in in how I feel about it. Um, But a lot of it too, is that I feel like I'm a kid again when I'm out there. there. There are times when, you might not have a lot of turkey action going on, but you know it's hot some days, and there've been days I've taken my boots off and gone wading in a creek, um, take a nap out under you know in the river bottom. Um, but it's the, the thing about turkey hunting is not just the hunting that's so nice; it's, it's the whole experience and sharing it with other people. Once you've done it, um, the challenge of actually bringing a gobbler in is also a part of it that I I truly enjoy very much. And um, I've said to people in the past, um, I think turkey hunting is a a lot like playing chess when all the pieces are moving around at the same time sometimes. So so it's it's an interactive sport where you have so many decisions to make on, um, is it time to make a call um, or should I be quiet? Um, and if I am making a call, which one to make and how long should I call? Am I in the right place? Should I move? Or am I gonna spook a turkey? It's just all of those decisions. And there's so many opportunities to mess up um, that it's just a really a fun, challenging thing to go out and do. And just quite different from being in the office every day. Um, so it's, it's really a, a fun thing and I've enjoyed it all these years and have done it for a long time. And um, every year the anticipation is a little like feeling like it's a kid at Christmas. So those are some of the things I really enjoy about it.
2: It sounds like there's a handful, Kathy. <laughs> All right, Pat, would you take it away? Oh, you're, you're there. we you go. Yeah,
3: thank you. Um, yeah, and I got to say, I, my hair looked a lot better in my mind's eye than it does on Zoom. So I apologize to all of you having to look at that. But um, I, a lot of the stuff Kathy said, um, I I would echo here. One thing growing up in the West, the Rocky Mountain West, we didn't have turkeys until, I don't know, probably, you know, 20 years, 15, 20 years after, um, you know, Kathy was hunting them where she's at. And so... Um, it's relatively new out west. I didn't get started hunting turkeys until a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. But um, what what I like about them is um, I kind of look at them like little elk. They're really well adapted to their environment. They're super smart. And during the spring, they're really talkative. And so you've got all of this activity going on. You can hear the hens talking to the toms and the toms calling to the hens and the hens talking to each other and, and all of that kind of stuff. And you're trying to figure out all of those pieces in your own mind. Um, And then I do think there is something, some kind of humility that comes from hunting an animal that's supposed to have a brain the size of a pea and it repeatedly outwits you over and over and over again. So it just keeps you going back. It is a beautiful time of the year to be in the woods and um, I don't know about the rest of you, but like this year in particular, um, not only am I like ready for winter to be over, but I've been suffering from COVID fatigue for like a whole year and I am so ready to get out in the woods um, this hunting season that it's gonna be extra special.
2: Absolutely, thanks Pat. Uh, Mary, do you wanna tell us what it is about turkey hunting that keeps you coming back?
4: Hi guys, um, my name is Mary Lynn and I've been turkey hunting ever since I was about 10 years old, that's when I started. Um, And what keeps me coming back is just the action side of it. Um, Deer hunting fun, it's kind of a freezer filler for me, but man, I get bored sitting in that blonde all day. Um, So getting out in the woods and and, uh, talking to the birds, they talk back, Uh, that's that's what's a lot of fun for me. Um, The challenge behind it, so I'm going for my grand slam. I, I just like a challenge, you know, I'm short one bird, which is called the Osceola, which they'll get into later. But I just like the challenge, the fun, you know, and and man, you're gonna mess up, you're gonna screw up, you're gonna have all kinds of great stories to tell. Uh, but I just love the action of of getting after that gobbler. You know, you wake up early and getting them gobbling on the hill and all that fun stuff. And that's just an absolute blast. So that's, that's probably my favorite thing with turkey hunting.
2: Very cool. So our, our final presenter, Emily, uh, pursues turkeys using not only a bow but a, a traditional bow. Am I correct, Emily? That's
0: correct. So um, I'm crazy. Let us know about that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
0: it's it's funny because I've actually never been gun hunting for turkeys. I've only I've only gone bow hunting for turkeys, and. Um, it's, it's definitely challenging. So I can't I can't really compare because I haven't actually gun hunted for them, but um, it's definitely challenging, but it's so fun. Like it's just, you have to just be extra, extra sneaky because they, they'll they see every movement that you make when you're pulling your <laughs> your bow back. It's just hilarious. Cause you're just like, oh, I had such a great chance but there's the opportunity. It's very rare to actually get one, um, but it's really fun. And I just, I absolutely love it. So.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Um, with that, I would ask that everybody who's typed their location into the chat, hit enter. So hopefully we can populate. There we go. Look at that. This is going to be fun. Y'all can connect after the call. Um, and with that, we are going to jump into our first bit of information, which is going to be presented by Pat and we're going to, she's going to be telling us about um, the subspecies of wild turkey. Sorry, everyone, bear with me here. I need to share my screen and also have the presentation up at the same time. Uh, Just a second here. All right. Is is everyone seeing that North American Wild Turkey 5 subspecies title slide? Pat, can you see that? Awesome. All right. So Pat, you just let me know when you want me to change sides and we'll do it this way.
3: All right. Thank you, Ashley. So um, first off, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Pat Dorsey, and I currently work for the National Wild Turkey Federation. Um, Prior to that, I worked for Colorado Parks and Wildlife for a number of years. And um, I want you all to know I thought turkeys were tremendous even before I went to work for the NWTF. So with that, um, I have a couple of slides that are just real general. Um, Most of you um, may uh, may find these a little elementary, but I think they are some kind of fun biological facts. So Ashley will take the next slide. First off, I think turkeys are beautiful birds. Um, You can see this iridescence on their feathers. I've heard them called the copper peacock. Um, And today in North America, there are about seven million birds in the United States. So one more slide. I think turkeys are beautiful, but um, some people say they, uh, you know, have a face that only a mother could love that uh, where the blue arrow pointing of course is the beard and oftentimes you'll talk, to, uh, you'll hear turkey hunters talk about how long their turkey hunt their turkeys beard was, if it had two beards or three beards, that kind of thing. But really those are modified feathers that look like hairs. Um, you will also occasionally find bearded hens, but the hens will have a real smaller and a finer beard. So next slide. This speaks to the true beauty of the turkey um, is that, that naked head. Um, the thing that over the nose is called a snood. And one of the things I think that's kind of cool about a snood besides having an interesting name is that um, it'll really tell you about um, the bird's gender, their health, and what kind of mood they're in. It'll change color and get larger and all of that kind of stuff based on, on what kind of mood it's in. Underneath the beak, um, from the beak down to the neck is what's referred to as the wattle, and those fleshy lumps on their neck are called caruncles. Um, The the biggest caruncles being at the base of the neck are called the major caruncles. So with that, I'm going to move into the five subspecies and, um, and where they occur in the United States. So on the map here, the dark blue is the eastern subspecies of wild turkey. Um, and they're found basically east of the Missouri River. The red shows you the um, range of the Miriam subspecies of, of turkey, and they are all um, west of the Missouri River. And then you've got some Rio Grands, which appear in green. They've been introduced to different places, but basically their range is from Kansas to Texas. Um, In Florida, you have the Florida subspecies also called the Osceola, the one that Mary is looking for to finish her Grand Slam, and they're found only in Florida. And then um, in peach, you can barely see it, but down in the southeastern corner of Arizona and the southwestern corner of New Mexico, you have the Gould's wild turkeys, and there's also a string of those in uh, Northern New Mexico. Now you'll also see some um, yellow on there and those are where turkeys have hybridized, A couple of subspecies have hybridized. Usually it's Rio Grande and Miriams but you may have some others where Easterns and Rio Grands have hybridized that kind of thing. And then down in the light blue in the Southern Mexico is oscillated turkeys. I'm not gonna spend much time on them but I wanted to mention them in case you've heard about them. So we'll move to the Eastern subspecies. Um, Out of those 7 million birds I mentioned, 5.3 million of them are Eastern subspecies. Now these are the heaviest birds. They have the biggest beards, the loudest gobbles. They live in forested and swampy habitats. And some people will say they are the smartest subspecies of wild turkeys. As a Westerner, I respectfully disagree, and I'll tell you why when I get to that Western subspecies. Um, The next one, please, Ashley. I mentioned that Florida has its own subspecies of wild turkey, the Osceola. There are only about 90,000 Osceola turkey in Florida, and next to the eastern, they are the, um, they've got the loudest gobbles. They've got the blackest feathers, that kind of thing. Um, They have extremely long legs and long spurs. And so you often hear these guys referred to as having limb hanger spurs. They'll have up to two inch long spurs that you could, they claim you can actually hang the turkey on a limb and and hang it there. They're found out in the open um, in palmetto and in pine habitats within Florida. So mostly on the interior, we don't find the turkeys strolling the beach too much. They look terrible in a swimsuit. Um, okay, so Miriam subspecies um, are found primarily west of the Missouri River. They've got a real white band on the, their tail fans. They've got shorter beards, shorter spurs, and they live in rugged mountain habitats. Now, some people claim that a Miriam's is a lot dumber than an eastern turkey, and when I have read and I I have a tendency to believe is that it all depends on how much hunting pressure these birds have seen. So in the East where they're hunted a lot, they're called to a lot, people use decoys a lot, they're not gonna come into a decoy or a a bad turkey collar. In the West, they might be a little bit dumber because it's like nobody's played that trick on them before. But um, places in the West where they they have been hunted. They're pretty smart. And I will also say, I'm, I'm curious about the short beards and short spurs because uh, when you have turkeys walking around in rocky habitats, I think that probably has to do something like wearing down the, the length of the spurs. And we're ready to go to the next one. So the Rio Grande's I call the tweeners. Um, I mentioned that they're found between Kansas and Texas primarily. They live in plains habitat. Brushy habitats and in cottonwood river bottoms. I call them tweeners because between the eastern subspecies and the Miriam subspecies, they kind of fall somewhere in between. They don't have a copper tail band and they don't have a real light tail band, but they've got kind of a tan tail band. Um, they're not. They don't have super long beards, but they don't have short beards. So they're kind of they fall somewhere in between there. Um, and I I think about find in Rio Grande primarily on on river bottoms but you like I mentioned you also find them in the the plains and brushy habitats and the last one I believe is our Gould subspecies. Goulds are the rarest um, turkey in the United States. Um, A lot of um, it'll be interesting to get Mary's perspective a lot of people that get their Grand Slam will actually go to Mexico to pick up their Goulds turkey because there's so many more of them the range is really limited in the United States, but they're the largest subspecies. They've got longer legs and larger feet and larger center tail feathers than any of the other subspecies. And one of the things that you'll also notice about Goulds is they have a lot of white on their bodies and their wings. If you look at this photograph furnished by the New Mexico Game and Fish Department, to me it almost looks like they're wearing a lace skirt or something because it's so much white on their tail. And then the last bird is that one that I talked about is called the oscillated turkey. This is the one that you find only in Mexico, Belize, and Guatemala. It really does look kind of like a peacock. um, And it has no beard, but very long spurs. So with that, that's a brief introduction to the five subspecies. And I'll turn it back to you, Ashley. Wonderful.
2: Thank you, Pat. Everyone could just bear with me a second here while I switch out my screens. So I'm gonna talk very briefly about um, quota and draw hunts for turkeys. I'm assuming a lot of people on the call are familiar with how getting a turkey tag works in the state where you live or where you hunt. Um, But really quickly, just wanna go over how that works generally. So each state is different. Most states, um, especially if they have a robust turkey population have um, like a general tag that you can buy, whether it's part of a sportsman's license or some other annual hunting license that you buy. And then there's a a bag limit associated with that. So maybe it's one bearded turkey, two bearded turkeys, et cetera, for the season. Um, So a, a lot of states, again, especially with states with robust turkey populations also have what they call draw or quota hunts. And these are essentially tags that are given out on a lottery system Um, So you need to apply for the tag and, you know, you you may or may not get drawn. Oftentimes, it's associated with a very specific area or unit of the state. And it may even be that there's a specific date that you can then go on your hunt um, if you get drawn. And the benefits to those quota or draw hunts are that often you can get a little bit um, better opportunity as far as public land goes and potentially less crowding because the tags are limited. Um, So there's only so many people out there, but you have to apply in advance, sometimes a whole year in advance. Um, I was looking up the regulations for some of the states that we have folks joining us from tonight. And yeah, a couple of them you had to apply last year. (laughs) So there's a few states that still have draw hunts open. I would encourage you to go check that out um, on your state wildlife agency's webpage, but, um, yeah, plan ahead. Those are, those are good opportunities or they can be. Just wanted to make everybody aware of that. And from there, I'm going to turn it over to Kathy and Mary who are going to do some calling demonstrations for us.
1: Okay, thank you, Ashley. Um, Mary and I talked about this the other day on how we were going to do this and. Each of us has our favorites and we do use some of the same calls. So we thought what we would do is for example, box calls. We're both going to demonstrate some box calls for you and others that we both do. Um, But it is something that I think I wouldn't and and I didn't introduce myself earlier, Kathy Stevens and I live in Columbia, South Carolina but I've lived in other parts of the the state and have hunted primarily here um, myself. But the, I guess the only wrong turkey call that you can use is to not use one at all. So, you know, you can, um, and we, we both were talking about how probably the the call that we'd recommend that people start with if they haven't already is a box call because it's been around a long time. It's something that um, you can learn it pretty quickly on and you can make a lot of different calls on it. And we, both of us have way too many toys Um, but this one is the one that I usually have in my vest and it's you can see it's discolored um, over the years it's just it's one that looks a lot like those old lynch boxes um, that you hear about some of the early ones but it's one that um, it was an old Quaker Boy um, box called that Dick Kirby who's who founded Quaker Boy picked out for me many years ago and so that's one of them that I'm going to and to demonstrate and then we both have some long calls like this um, boat paddle calls and then there's this one is a called a mini boat paddle it's a tiny one a different pitch and I, and those are just a few we've I've got boxes of them here so what we're going to do and and um, Mary's going to talk a little bit about hers but let me just start with this one and um, what you you see is the paddle of course on the, the box and that has a screw here on this that you can actually adjust if you want to with attention on it. And some people hold, I tend to hold mine this way. Sometimes I will hold it this way, just depends on what you wanna do, but just a basic call. And if you look on the other side, you might get a little different um, pitch on that. Um, Don't worry if it's not perfect if it's too perfect it doesn't really sound like a hen. so <laughs> that's one of the things that you, know, you hear somebody out in the woods and it's like i wonder that's really not a hand that's got to be a person it's too perfect but the basic yelp that's the one that will kill a bunch of turkeys so starting with the basic yelp is one thing you can also do little cuts things of that sort. And then there's some that you can, um, Mary may have one with the rubber bands on it that you can shake to gobble with. Um, You can do some little purrs on them. Just getting started, I would recommend just a just the basic yelp on it. And I'll just do a couple more and then Mary's gonna do some. This is that long box I was talking, the, the boat pedal kind. It's just the—it's more the rhythm than anything else, but the pitch—you can tell—is so different.
2: Becky, I'm going to interrupt you just for one second. It's—it seems like Zoom is trying to correct for the horrible turkey noise that you're making, <laughs> so it cuts you out. So I wonder if you hold it a little bit farther away from the computer if it'll carry it is, through.
1: Okay, this is one that's so high pitched I just don't ever carry it. But just wanted you to hear the difference. See if the, if you can hear this. hear that okay well i'll go back to the first one again and see if that helps to do that that's the one i usually take with me hunting when at the box so mary's going to talk a little bit about some boxes and then we'll move on to some other types of calls too
4: all right well like uh, miss kathy said there's all kinds of different calls that you can use um different sounds, different pitches. Now there's three basic turkey calls when you're getting started. You're gonna use a yelp, you're gonna use a cluck, and then there's also a purr. Um, Mainly clucks and yelps are kind of what you're gonna wanna do. So I've got a a basic box kind of like what she had. It's a double-sided, so you've got two different hens on this one, but on other boxes, you might have a hen sound on one side and a gobbler sound on another side. Now this is a twisting creek call made um, from, by Jeff McCamey out of uh, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's, it's made out of uh, blood uh, bloodwood and black limba. So different woods on these calls also make a different sound. So mine are probably going to be a little bit more raspier than Miss Kathy's because I like a little bit more of a raspy tone. Seems like the birds that I hunt in the area respond better to a raspy tone, but rios sound different, eastern hens sound different, miriams sound different. The best way to learn what your birds are gonna like is to just get in the woods and listen to the hens talk. If you can find a big flock in the winter, because you'll find a big bunches of hens in the winter and just listen to the way they communicate to one another. And that's the best way to kind of learn how they talk, how they communicate and all that kind of stuff. So this is my uh, uh, short box from Jeff McCamey, or what I call a short box, because you'll see my long box in a little bit. So I do a little bit of cutting. and then you do some small yelp. Then you can cluck. And then you have your purrs. Now, a long box is one of my favorite calls because if it's built correctly, you can actually get more than one hen out of one box call. So this is one of my long boxes. And when I say a long box, it's a long box. It's not gonna fit in any turkey vest or anything like that that you carry. Now, This is what's called a Fat Bottom Girl. It's built by Bob Fulcher. It's mineral poplar um, with a bloodwood paddle. I always like a bloodwood paddle. I just like the way that sounds. So when I was talking about you could get different birds out of this one call, if I start way up here at the top, I get a real high, what I call a jenny sound. And as you go down, there's one bird. Two birds, three different turkeys. So I could take this one box call and make three different turkey sounds on it. So, um, and I've always enjoyed custom box calls because if they're built correctly, it, it's easier to run. But there's a lot of good starter calls, kind of like Winch. You can go buy at Bass Pro, Woodhaven. You can go buy at Bass Pro, and they're great calls to get started. Very easy to run as well. And I think the next thing we're going to move on to is pot calls, and I'll let Miss Kathy take that part over.
1: Okay, um, and again, like anything else, once you start doing this, you're going to collect a bunch of these. And I pare down what I carry with me, but I always carry a box, a slate, a glass, and a bunch of diaphragm calls uh, with me. So I'll start with, um, this is a glass call. Um, it was It's one I've had for years. It's called the Crankin' Crystal, the Carolina Assassin. Uh, Anyway, somebody, a local guy in South Carolina made this years ago, Tony Reynolds, but, um, and then the different, one of the things you'll find with these is that you want to make sure if you've got a glass call that you make it rough so that it's not, if it's really slick, it's not going to sound, it's going to kind of move and do something like, you're not going to get much with it. So you, this is one of those um, things that you can rough it with, but you can also get things that are The stone that you can do um, sharpen um, fish hooks with works for that too. But you just take it and where you're going to run the call. And then you want to hold it, cup it in your hand to have a little bit of um, space in your palm, between the palm and this. And then your peg, you want to angle it a little bit toward you and you just find, and you can, play with it at different places until you find the, the sweet spot for the calls But just... You can do lots of things with this one, just like with the box call you heard, uh, Mary demonstrating too, you can do purrs. If you wanna get into the aggravated purrs where you wanna act like um, Jake's or whatever, you can do some kinds of things like that as well. But you can make lots of different calls with this. And I mentioned just the sound of this. This one has a carbon tip. Then if you get a wooden tip, you hear different sounds with that. Um, This one is, I think this was made out of an arrow. It's got beamen written on it. Um, So you can find all kinds of pegs. Lots of different things that you can do with with that one. So, Mary, if you want to do something with your glass or others, then I'll come back to the slate later.
4: Yeah, so we were talking about pot calls, and, and I've got a, uh, one of my favorites is a David Halloran metal mouse. Now it's a glass, but underneath that is a dome uh, with a piece of, so it's a thin piece of metal that's been domed out, it gives a certain sound. And like Miss Kathy was talking about, uh, different strikers give you different sounds, so. Take your pick on whatever you want. You know, I carry several different strikers and maybe just a couple pots. And I mean, I'm, I'm striker poor, I guess you would say. So we're covered. We've got this. But um, so on my glass, uh, I usually carry this purple heart. Cause purple heart's a softer wood and it's going to give a softer tone. Glass calls always project louder, um, so they're great for locating a bird long off and everything like that. So. Um, Clay Townsend is probably one of my favorite call makers for strikers and, and pots, and I've got one of his slates over here. But this David Howler, and always worked really well for me. So with the Purple Heart, it's just got a little bit softer sound. And then I've got a, a yellow wood that gives a certain sound. We've got them made with like corn cobs and, and you can make your own and, and everything like that. And then we've even got, I've got some of the uh, synthetic that she was talking about. It's good for if it's wet outside, it'll still run some of your calls. That's the only downfall to a pot call is this top gets wet, it's gonna be very hard to use it. And so t- to you know counteract that, you'll see some people carry aluminum, um, copper, or brass tops, metal tops you can kind of use in all weather. Uh, I don't like the sound because I hear a metal sound in the yelp, but you can kill a turkey with them if you are in all weather and everything like that. But I'm very kind of picky about my sound. But I do carry these if it does rain or something like that. But I can hear a metallic sound on these that I've never really enjoyed. Some sound great, but everybody's going to, you're going to get your own ear. So what I might like, Miss Kathy might not like, what Miss Kathy might like, I might not like. Everybody has a different t- sound that they like in their turkeys, and, and it's again, it just comes down to listening to the the birds around you and see what they sound like.
1: But you know what's most important though is what are the turkeys like? <laughs>
4: you, what are the turkeys like? What do they respond to? Yep.
1: So that's why we carry these different calls around. But I mean, you were talking about the aluminum ones. I don't like the way mm-hmm. they sound they're just they're just harsh sounding it's,
4: to Yeah, like. it's just the it's just the high pitch.
1: Yeah. Oh. Um, this is an old Lewis stove. He started making these, I don't know, back in the '60s, I guess. I've got a bunch of his. He started with little, with small things like this. It didn't have any. It wasn't really a pot. It was really kind of flat, um, and you really had to cup it to make sounds on it. But um, there are all kinds of makers of these as well. But similar thing to what we were talking about with the glass. And you just find one you like and just go with it. And I don't know if you can hear it or well, not. But um, all of these pot calls, um, there's some predecessors. This one was called a tiny coiner from A.M. Coiner back in Waynesboro, Virginia in the 60s, I guess. It's just the same thing. It's a little slate on top of a box. But the main thing, and listen to this. I don't like the way it sounds that much either. I don't carry it with me. And then the other... Friction calls. You got one of those, too. Yeah, go ahead and demonstrate it, Mary. Yeah, well,
4: I, I love mine. I actually kill a lot of, in you see, that's what I'm talking about, like different sounds. Like, I've killed a lot of turkeys with these little guys. And mm-hmm. I call them what's called a per pot. So I'll just sit there and pluck. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah.
4: And just talk softly on these. And that's what always works with these, and especially on Easterns because uh, like they were talking before, they do get heavily pressured. So you can overcall some turkeys really easy, especially in on public land. So if you just sit there with one of these and cluck and just purse softly, not even really get into Yelps, it might make a big difference too, so.
1: And I'm sure you have some of these. This is the little push pin. This is a double push pin that you can use for fighting purrs, <laughs> kind of like. but these are really easy to use. Oh, I said it's easy to use another one that's an easy one to get started with but um we could we could sit here all day talking about all these different calls oh we can Um, and you were talking mary about um carrying the metal ones aluminum and all when it's raining um i don't i just i I always have diaphragm so you don't have to worry about it um so these are there's so many of these and they're lightweight um it depends on your palate whether it's wide or narrow what's going to sound best in your mouth and this this one's kind of like a um, bat wing and this one's kind of a bat wing with a piece cut out of the side there are so many different kinds but I just recommend getting some of these and just playing with them um let me just take one of my mouth and I'm sure you all know how to do this they have instructions on sticking it in up against the roof and I'm calling Am I too close? Could we hear it? it too close? Oh, okay. That's no, it's good to
4: go. Okay.
1: That's a different one. And, um, you know, it's just a, a bunch of, I'm using Legacies right now because I find they're easy out of the box, but there, I mean, there are a million different ones I've used over the years. Um, Can do, you can do fly down calls, cuts, clucks, you know, yelps on these things, and do a lot of things. Some people even gobble. You can purr on them. Um, it takes some practice. And the one thing about these is, um, like I said, they take up no space. So you can carry a bunch of different ones and sound like different hens um, with them. And the main thing, I think we were also supposed to be talking about when to use what calls. Um, some if you wanted to do fly down calls it's pretty easy to do these these, but they when you're using these also you're not moving like we were talking about like pat was saying is you just got to be still so much but i really like the diaphragm calls and it's kind of fun to try to make your own too there you also can get the materials and make your own and try different calls and were you going to talk about um mary about wing bones and
4: oh yeah We've got wing bones and trumpets. Um, these are all off of birds that I've killed. So like I'm going for my grand slam and I have a friend, Kevin Rouse, every time I kill a turkey, I'll take him the wings and he'll make me a wing bone. Uh, this is actually the knuckle. So this goes into the shoulder part of the wing and you, you'll you pop it out, just take them a full wing and they can make it for you. Uh, this turkey is actually a Rio. no, this is my Miriams. This is a Miriams I killed out in Nebraska. This was an eastern bird that I've I've killed here local. And this is where he's kind of cut off the uh, the knuckle and just kind of made it a little smaller. Um now these are, are, are kind of called what's called a trumpet ball. So for them you just kind of kiss on them to make them to make them kind of sound. And I'm not the best at this, but I'm gonna try it anyway, but um Let me try this other one real quick. They're harder to use. You got to do a lot of practicing with them. But it's kind of neat and you can put them up in your house, decorate them, use them, actually kill a turkey with them. Um, And then they've got a trumpet call which is made out of wood and different materials. Um, And they kind of work the same way as what that wing bone does. Um, so that's a different t- style. Um, you've also got these. These are kind of an old style. Uh, they're called a tube call. Um, they used to make them out of snuff cans. You might hear some old timers call them a snuff call. Um, those old Garrett cans, I guess it was, they'd cut the top out of them, put a little piece of latex on it and, and use it. Um, now, I'm, I can't get a good sound out of these, so I'm not going to demonstrate it. I don't know if Miss Kathy can use them or not. but
1: Listen both this, these calls, the wing bones, this, and those tubes. I don't use because they tickle my lips and I just cannot do it. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but I can't, use a, I can't use a diaphragm. I've got a, a crooked smile, and so I can't ever get one to fit right, to sound right. So that's why I can kind of use those trumpets so-so. Um, and then we've got striker boxes. I think she had a striker box out too. This is another old style of call that you can use. Um, and it's, it's, you just kind of, this is a super yelper made by Richard Shively. He's been in the business for years and years and years too. Um, he's won all kinds of competitions and stuff with his striker boxes. I like these is my running and gunning call is what I call it. Cause I can drop my vest. My vest is usually 30 pounds because I pack it full of stuff. And I can throw this in my shirt pocket and just take off because I hunt East Tennessee mountains. So if I need to get on the other side of the ridge, i can throw it in my pocket and just go. So, um, and, and we've got locator calls. Did you bring any loc- locator calls, Miss Kathy? Uh,
1: well, there are, I have a crow call, which I rarely use. I usually just wait for the birds and I move myself, but you can use crow calls. You can use a lot of different things. And this is a gobble shaker thing. I'll do it. I'm not real good at it, but <laughs> <laughs> some people can make them sound good, but I tend to try to be um, light um, footprint in the woods and try to only make sound when I need to. The crow call is a good thing to use at times and to try to sound like something. I, I think, I, you know, you can hear a turkey gobble at a coyote or anything else out there, but Um, A lot of people will use um, locator calls like that. Owl calls too, and the uh, owl calls, they have some nice ones but if I'm gonna do that, I just do it with my mouth. I don't even use a call for that. What about you, Mary?
4: I use uh, owl calls in the morning, um, just as a locator call. So when we say locator call, what's happening is a turkey during the spring, his testosterone is so high that he is just looking for a hen. He's getting really excited all the time and he will do what's called a shot gobble. So they'll hear a loud noise. It can be a door shutting, it can be uh, an owl, it can be a coyote in the West and they'll shot gobble. And we call that a locator call because that gives you the chance to locate exactly where that turkey's at. So I personally like a owl call in the morning. So, and we use a a barred owl down in East Tennessee. Um, so, you know, we'll have an owl call in the morning to locate. And then I'll use a crow call in the afternoon, uh, because I mean, you're not going to hear crows at 6:30 in the morning when the sun's not up. So you and so you'll hear crows more in the afternoon. That's why we use crows then. So. And All right. Sorry. Well.
1: I know we're well, behind schedule. Sorry, Ashley.
2: Like... <laughs> no, that's fine. It sounds like maybe we should have made an entire calling event. Um, So we have, we do need to move on, but we have two questions that um, people have submitted to the Q&A. So first one is from Emily. Are there any smaller box calls or is it really just preference or is there a reason for the long or short box calls?
4: There are smaller box calls. Um, There's a reason behind everything. A long box is a little bit louder, so it'll actually reach out uh further so a lot of people that hunt rios or miriams those plains type turkeys where they might be miles away if i really and i'm at work so i really can't south down on that call but if i really hit it hard uh, that call will actually carry for miles now they do make smaller box calls to fit smaller hands and there's a one-sided box call i wish i'd have brought but i forgot to grab it this morning they're very easy to use um lynch makes one and then Alan Jenkins is my favorite. He makes one called the Lady Diamond and he has designed it to actually be for smaller hands so it's easier for people to use. The only thing about getting into a smaller call every once in a while, it'll it'll raise that pitch. So sometimes that squeaky Jenny Hen kind of sound that I kind of talked about earlier uh, is not gonna be exactly what that gobbler wants to hear. So you might need uh, something a little bit bigger that that can uh, get a little bit lower. And again, if the call is made correctly, even though it's a little bit bigger, just the move, you're moving your wrist and not your elbow. The biggest uh, uh, mistake I see a lot with people working box calls, instead of flicking their wrist, they're wanting to do a full motion with their hand. And so it's just more of a motion in your wrist um, than actually moving this elbow. You want to kind of keep that elbow still when you are working a box box call. But there are call makers out there that uh, are noticing that women are starting to grow and so they're starting to actually make smaller calls to fit smaller hands like i've got a a, a mouse call here that was made smaller for smaller hands and for use or for for women that would be easier for some people to carry or handle versus like my big aluminum so
1: and, and I, right. here is a hs strut on the that's a smaller one you can see than the other one um, and, and i'm five three and weigh 115 i'm petite so sometimes things don't fit me as well either and um so I, I, I do appreciate this one feels more comfortable but i've been using this one for 40 years so i'm probably going to use
4: that one she just held out is what i called my first turkey with though that old mama hen uh, this one, that's I'll- that's what i called my first yep that's what i called my first turkey and was that exact collar out right there i love
2: that thing, yeah. Good thing. all right i'm going to combine two of the other questions and then we're going to have to move on so do you cut down your mouth calls to make them fit better? If so, how do you know how to cut them down? And then we have somebody else who's a little bit nervous to use a diaphragm because they have a fear of accidentally inhaling it. So how do you cut them down? Do you ever, Can you ever inhale them?
1: Um, no, they're too big to inhale. So the first thing I would say is don't worry about that. You might choke because you're getting it so far back in your palate that it makes you get that reflex, a, a gag reflex. But yes, the... There are different frames. When you look at this, um, and you see this thing here, but actually the metal part is this part here inside this frame, um, inside the, the tape. And you can get scissors and you can trim this tape if it makes you have a gag reflex then you can trim the tape to make it smaller. You just need a little tape around it to, to be able to seal it against the roof of your mouth. Um, so that's not an issue. And, and if you, there, there are calls made that are for small pallets. And I think somebody mentioned that too. Um, my husband's a, a champion turkey caller, and two of his friends are as well. And when I first started trying to use these things, I was listening to them. I didn't hunt with these things for a couple of years thinking there's no way I can sound good. But then I found out that turkeys don't sound that good either. Um, so just go play with them, get different ones. And my husband has a very narrow palette. I use a wider one than he does. So it just really is a matter of what fits you better. But I've found the, the manufacturers are actually offering different sizes now, whereas it all it used to all be one fits all. Um, so you can find other find some in, in the, for the smaller pallets. Awesome, all right.
2: Hopefully we'll have a little bit of time at the end. If folks have more calling questions, we can circle back. Um, but now we are gonna move on to a discussion of scouting turkeys. Uh, it's gonna be led by Pat and Kathy. Pat is gonna be talking about scouting specifically as it pertains to the West. So Pat, do you wanna lead us off?
3: Sure, thank you. Um, so i am not a huge fan of scouting for turkeys in the west and and there's a couple of reasons for that i think um western birds miriams and rios are pretty nomadic and so being able to um, scout them any uh, any time before hunting season doesn't make much sense and if you're in the woods um, during hunting season looking for turkeys, you might as well be carrying a gun and hunting them um, so I would I would say that I, I do do the uh, you know go out in the morning um, listen for turkey gobbles, that kind of thing but but nothing as official as what I would call scouting. The other thing that I do is um, you know, all throughout the year, um, you're hiking around in the woods. You're you going to your favorite fishing spot, or you're going out to take photographs, or you're doing whatever else it is you do. I look for turkey sign in the woods, and so I look for a lot of turkey scat under a tree that might indicate that that's a roost tree, and there are a lot a lot of birds using that tree. Um, what I find in the West is that even those roost trees aren't that that well. Uh, that well used because they'll use that tree for a week or so and then they'll move to another location and and so you won't get the big piles of, of turkey scat like you will some other places. Um, I, I also look for you can see places where the turkeys have been underneath the ponderosa pine or underneath the oak brush and they'll actually do a lot of scratching um, looking for seeds and um, and roots and things like that to, to um, eat. But other than that, I don't do a lot of scouting and I know it's completely different with Eastern birds for which I have very little experience. So I'm gonna turn it back to you guys.
2: But didn't you mention something too when we were talking about following the snow line?
3: Thank you for reminding me. So one of the things in the, in the West that I've noticed is uh, those birds will have a tendency to move to winter range and in the spring they move with the snow line and so um, you may find them in one place one week and as the snow melts and it's 500 feet in elevation above where you were um, that's where the turkeys will be the next next week for whatever reason i'm not sure but i've found birds as high as i don't know 9,000, 10,000 feet if if you're following the snow line on up and so that's kind of neat too is as you go through the hunting season we don't have to change states. We can just continue to go up in elevation in in our, uh, our Western states. See, I'm kind of a Western snob. I apologize to, to the Eastern folks here. Um,
2: hey, we, we've got people that I know are gonna wanna hunt turkeys both in the East and the West. So we are happy that everyone could join us. It sounds like the takeaway, Pat, is that to hunt in the West, you need to stay on your toes. Is that the case? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think so. And and I'm hoping to see that, you know, Kathy will invite me out east to hunt birds and prove me wrong with all this Western stuff too. See, that's, that's the idea of this whole event.
1: Well, I'll, I must say, Pat, though, that even when I've hunted out west, those gobblers out there kind of like those eastern girls too, so they'll respond <laughs> to the, the calls that we use in the east. Um, yeah, scouting in the east, and and, when, and there's different kind of scouting. When you talk about the whole region, that's a lot of different kinds of terrain. Um, and if you're scouting, in and in, as I said, I live in South Carolina, so we have all the way from the seashore to the mountains. We actually have a few mountains in the upper reaches of South Carolina. Um, So if you're um, scouting uh, and hunting below the fall line where it's relatively flat, it's a little different than hunting north of the fall line where you've got lots of hills and valleys and some ridges that are beginning to then turn into the mountains. And um, most of my hunting I do in the upper part of the state where there are hills and valleys and ridges. Um, And so that makes a difference in where you want to go and how you wanna do your scouting. Um, Pat mentioned she um, didn't particularly care about scouting. And when I, when I think about scouting, I'm really thinking, I think a little bit like she is, um, I don't wanna go out there and educate those gobblers ahead of time. I don't want to hear them to hear me calling a lot. When I go out and call, I wanna be out there with my shotgun in my hand. So I don't usually call when I'm out scouting. Now, I'll go outside and practice outside because your calls do sound different outside. But when I'm scouting, I really am looking for um, turkey sign, as Pat said. Um, I'll look for scratching. Is there fresh scratching around that shows it there? Um, she mentioned the turkey scat. And if you, you find some blobs of turkey poop, it's hens. But the gobblers have kind of thinner J. They're kind of like J-shaped. Um, scat that you find. Um, So it's, you can tell sometimes the, whether it's a male or a female that's been at that roost tree um, that she was talking about or that just was wandering around where there's food. Um, And as far as where the turkeys are, are now and where they're going to be, turkeys change their habitat based on the season. They may be where mast is at certain times of the year with acorns and and such, or they may be in other places where there's, you know, their food plots, etc. So going out and scouting too far in advance, I haven't always found to be as beneficial, because when it's hunting time, sometimes they've moved elsewhere. So I love scouting, though. There's something about being out there, and there's, there's no there's really no pressure and all. It's just kind of fun to get out there and hear everything. And it's like that time of year again. But to go out scouting, one of the first things that I recommend is, um, you know, you can talk with people in your Department of Natural Resources if you don't have places to hunt already and ask them, the the people who are in the field, about um, public hunting lands and where they are seeing turkeys and where they would recommend you go. And in certain parts of the country, you have quite a bit of public hunting land. So it's really valuable to talk with those people who are out in the field. Um, So once you've found a place that seems like a likely place to hunt, um, you want to to get pull up some topo information on your phone. Now you can use the, you get the satellite information now, but what I sent to Ashley to pull up was just an old fashioned topo map. So this isn't is one that shows here. Um, so you see it says a fork of Little Creek here, and it's got it's kind of um, a little bit narrow on the upper part of it. And a lot wider on the bottom, where you see the level of the there that's this flat by the creek, those are pretty big river bottoms. Um, so, there you're going to sometimes find the turkeys roosting along the edges of where you see the ridges going out. Now, on this one, um, the, you'll see on the left side of this the little dotted line for a road, and it comes. Up and then down the ridge, and then back down into the river bottom between where the words Fork and Little are. I don't particularly, if, if I'm going to scout and I come, I'm coming in this road. I'm not going to go all the way down that ridge and then down into the river bottoms um, because for a couple of reasons. One, I've passed a lot of prime turkey roost habitat. And two, if I'm in that river bottom, I'm not going to be able to hear as far. So in this case, um, if I'm coming in here and coming off of that road on the left, I'm probably going to drop down a little bit to where it starts going down and then go back up on this ridge top and you see an elevation that says 470 kind of in the center of the map. That's a pretty good place. Yeah, that's a pretty good place to Um, stop and listen because you've got these ridges that the turkeys like to roost on out over the creek at the top and down at the bottom. And this particular location is good because you can hear on both sides and then back out in the middle. And turkeys like to roost on these bridges and sometimes these ridges are pines, sometimes mixed with hardwoods, sometimes all hardwoods. Um, But turkeys around here like pines. It's a, a preferred roost tree for them it's different in different places but any of these spots where you see these ridge tops and you don't have roads right on top of them are are good places to to um, stop and listen and when I'm talking scouting I'm typically talking going early in the morning while it's still dark and waiting for them to to start gobbling just to listen and I will go into a place like this and Listen after I've heard and hear a few of them gobbling. It's like, okay, there's one over there roosted close to the L and little, or down here close to the F and fork, or over on the other side. I mentally make a note, and then I might leave and try to hurry and get to another place close by and go listen there too. So, Pat, you wanted to mention something about Western birds?
2: No, Kathy, I
1: think we're good. Okay, um, can we look at the other map too, Ashley? Okay, and this again is, is again the same type of situation with an old-fashioned topo map, which I thought would be simpler to, to show you. And if you'll look on the right side, that little dotted line road bed that comes in, yeah, and it goes over there where it says a 550 marker, you'll see there are quite a few ridges that come off of that in other directions. This would probably be a really good place to go and to start and to listen on one finger here maybe go to a different finger and listen in those areas much better than where the roadbed on the bottom you'll see it goes all the way to right at where the creek itself is over on the left there's also a road that comes into a high point and so that's not a bad place either um sometimes too it depends on what the this this is the topographical feature, but what does it look like on the surface? Have trees been cut or is it forested still? Um, do you have short pines if it's a pine forest where they're too little for turkeys to roost? If so, you're probably not going to want to spend time there, but if there's been an area that's been cut over, the the turkeys will um, quite often like to roost on the edges of the cutover area. Um, sometimes they will fly down into the the cutover itself, as well, um, but those are just some some tips to get started with listening and, and seeing what you can find. If you if you find other little openings um, with um, you know little food plots and such, sometimes they will roost around that as well.
2: Very good. I don't maybe uh, Pat or Kathy. Maybe you can comment on this. I've heard oftentimes that turkeys really like open woods, so mm-hmm. they describing, you know, a forested area that has a really clear, visible, open understory. What would you say about that?
1: Yeah, they do. They One of the reasons they like it when it's open, I have seen them go through thick things that I didn't think they would. They don't like to go into the thick areas, mostly because their predators are there and can jump out and grab them. But they will go through thicker areas. Um where I hunt, they do like the open areas. And part of that is that they can be seen further, so uh, farther away. So when they're up there strutting, those hens can see them from a long way. And they also can see if there's danger from coyotes coming or foxes or bobcats or whatever. Um, But yeah, they do prefer the open areas um, as well.
3: Yeah, and I'll agree with Kathy on that. A lot of times people ask for advice on how they can make their habitat on their property better for turkeys. And we look at it a lot of times and we say it's WTT, which stands for way too thick. Um, So you need to have an understory that the turkeys can move around in part of it is predators. And I think the other part is just mobility. You think about it, if you're a turkey, you're you're constantly jumping over stuff and crawling through stuff. It's not an easy thing for them to do. It seems kind of counterintuitive, like they'd be less protected, but they're actually more protected if it's a little open and they have some escape routes.
2: Very good. All right, well, we're gonna move back to Kathy. She is gonna talk about what to put in your turkey vest when you go hunting and maybe also how to alter your turkey
1: vest to fit you? <laughs> Thanks, Ashley. I think, well, I mentioned I'm 5'3", weigh about 115 because I'm small. So they don't make turkey vests for me. They make turkey vests for, you know, 200 pound, six feet men, or they sometimes I've even um, bought a Jake hunting vest, but just didn't have enough pockets for me. Um, so I do tend to, I've, I've bought several vests over the years and, Um, have altered them. I uh, will get the sewing machine out and I'll just work on it till I make it fit and make it comfortable for me. Um, But before I get started and talk about what's in my vest, um, some of you I know are members of the National Wild Turkey Federation and I have been since I started hunting back in the late 70s. But um, in the January-February issue of Turkey Call Magazine, uh, Brian Lovett had an article about what's in his turkey vest. Well, most of what Brian had in that article is in my turkey vest. So if anybody wants to go read about that they can. There are a couple of things that maybe are a little different, but a lot of it is the same. So I'm going to... Here is the vest I'm using right now, and it's kind of probably kind of hard to see, but I do have lots of different things in here, although I have pared it down somewhat. I mentioned that, um, that all the turkey calls we have, this is where my box call is, and I had to take this fabric off and cut some additional fabric and sew on here to fit my box call. So, just because you get a vest that you like and it doesn't fit everything, doesn't mean you have to stick with it. Um, so, you can put it in other pockets, but I like having my box call on the outside. So, I did, and lots of times they sew them sideways. And I don't like that, so I change that orientation. Um, And I always got, I've got some shells. Everybody needs some shotgun shells, unless you're bow hunting. Of course, got my hunting license in here. Um, And this one, I carry, always carry an extra head net because you don't know, sometimes you lose these things when you take them off between places. And I usually carry some extra gloves too in in mine. Um, Up here, I have binoculars. My husband says you don't need binoculars when you're hunting, but I have actually um, sat still for 10, 15 minutes before um, waiting for a um, stump to move that ended up being a stump and not a turkey. So these these I carry with me. Um, I mentioned I've got all of these diaphragm calls that I carry in here. I have there's another one of those. I like the old blue chalk. It's carpenter chalk. It's hard to find anymore for my box calls. I carry that. Um, The best thing that was ever invented for turkey hunting is the thermocell. um, When I first got one of these I thought that because it really work, but mosquitoes are terrible in the spring in South Carolina where I hunt. So I always have a thermosel on, uh, on me to use when I need it. And I have it in this little mesh bag just simply because it fits in the side pocket on this vest that doesn't stay closed and it's the only place I could put it. And so if it swings out when I'm crawling to get in position, I don't lose it. Um, I usually have a snack with me. Um, as well. And then on the other side, I carry, this is a plastic flask. And I like it because of the shape of it. And it fits inside this other pocket up against me um, with water. Um, Many years ago, I didn't carry food or water when I was going and I don't know why we were crazy, but did that. Um, I have one slate, one glass, and sometimes I'll switch those around. Um, oh, this is little pruning shears. Everybody's seen these little ratchet things? Because when you sit down, sometimes they're a little, there's a little shrubbery or something in front of you You need to trim it a little bit. And I'll tell you a story another time that you can actually kill a rattlesnake with these things if you need to. So That's, an, that's for another day. Um, let's see, what else is in here? Of course, all the pegs that we talked about earlier and Oh, this is very important. Toilet tissue. You need toilet tissue sometimes out in the woods. And when I can, I try to actually put it back inside a little plastic bag and carry it with me. Um, I just like to not leave it in the woods, but I have left it in the woods before. And sometimes you will. I have a knife with me because you need those sometimes. And certainly if you're gonna clean your turkey, these are just little hard candies. Sometimes you, you almost—it's like your throat's dry and you're going to cough, and these things keep me from coughing. And then I have this, and it's got a lot of little things in it, including band-aids, um, a tiny little hand sanitizer, um, some extra calls. And when you get older and you and you can't see very well up close, when you've got your distance contacts in some teeny tiny little reading glasses if I need those <laughs> that fit in here. So a lot of different things. I even have a extra contacts and a little mirror in here. Now I know Victoria's Secret never intended to be in a turkey hunting vest, but hey, it was the right size and the right weight for it. Um, I carry a an EpiPen because I am allergic to Bumblebee stings only; they're not aggressive, so it's not a big deal for me. But I carry it just in case. Um, so anyway, there there are other things in than this vest, but that gives you an idea of it. And it does, as Mary said earlier, uh, it weighs 25 pounds probably when I get it fully loaded. Um, sometimes sometimes I will have a decoy, but usually I don't even don't carry decoys with me either. So. I'm sure all of the rest of you have a lot of that. Oh, I love the comment. This is like looking in my purse with everything. <laughs> oh, And Katrina, you tell your boyfriend that he needs to start bringing pruners himself. <laughs> Straight
2: from the experts. That was great, Kathy. Um, can you comment? Somebody asked why do you wear a vest and not just take a pack with you?
1: Yeah and I have friends who um, do take just take packs. Um, I'm a mobile hunter um, so I, I have hunted out of blinds on the you know edge of food plots and all but my favorite hunting is just going out and listening for a turkey to gobble and then I'm going to go wherever the turkey is and sometimes you can get lucky enough if you mess up on that turkey there's another one gobbling, and you want to go or I, I might do some running and gunning as they call it, where you're just going from place to place, prospecting, trying to get one to start. Um, and this way, everything is all there together. Um, so I don't have to uh, worry about it. I, when I take something out, I put it back in. But the best part of this is you pack the darn thing up the night before you go in hunting and you don't have to think about, how, did I remember to get this? Did I remember to get that? Um, because I have found myself, um, once I found myself in the woods without a turkey call. This was a long time ago. And that was not a lot of fun that particular day. But part of it's the convenience, but it's just all there together. And it, it does, sometimes it gets in the way. If you're having to crawl, I have dropped it. But you see how this thing's kind of big on me anyway, but, but it does the job. And it has a cushioned seat to sit on to. Does that help Did answer that question?
2: Yeah, I think that was great. Um, all right, so that, that covers what's in the turkey vest, at least what's in Kathy's vest. Uh, <laughs> next, we are going to talk about when to use a decoy and how to use a decoy. And Kathy and Mary Lynn are going to be talking about that. So I don't know. Mary, do you want to take the lead on that?
4: I can. I use a, a decoys a little bit now. Decoys are kind of a, I don't want to say a sensitive subject, but it can be a very broad subject. Um, there's a lot of different ways to use decoys. Like Miss Kathy said, she doesn't like to use, use decoys. Um, to me, a decoy is only a way to keep his attention off of looking for me. So if I'm calling and he's coming in and he sees a decoy, He's naturally going to kind of look for that decoy instead of maybe looking for me. So that might help any small movement, keep kind of any small movement hidden. He's not necessarily trying to pinpoint me out because he's focused on that decoy. He comes into that hen setup and he'll he'll blow up and strut. Um, he might spin. And if he's, if he's strutting and his fans out and he spins toward me, I can move if I need to shift that is when I'll shift or put my gun up or put my call down or whatever because he's blowing up at that decoy because he's trying to show off his girlfriend. Um, So that's kind of what I use decoys for. I use decoys very sparingly. Uh, Eastern turkeys are hunted a lot. So if you're hunting on on public land, two things can happen. Um, A decoy might shy a bird, if he's come into a decoy and he's been shot at but he they, they missed so a decoy could shy a bird and number two you have to be very safe with decoys um you don't want to sit directly behind your decoy in any way that you know if, if there's let's say i'm sitting and i'm able to see my decoy and there's a walking trail or a deer trail behind me i want it in a way that if the hunter come through he's not going to see that decoy and if he's if he does stupidly shoot which god forbid it does happen but if he does stupidly shoot at that decoy i don't want to be behind it to where i'm going to catch anything off of that um i use foam decoys because they will roll up in my vest and like i mentioned earlier i hunt a lot of mountain birds they're lighter they're not as heavy um so they're easy to put in my vest and just take off and i can you know pop out a hen if i need it um I use hens more than I do Jake decoys or gobbler decoys, um, but there's and there's more to it. This I could talk about decoys about as much as I could talk about turkey calls. But um, a decoy, you don't want to really overdo a decoy, and I'll let Miss Kathy talk about that because we had that conversation yesterday. Um, if you're not careful, you can almost look like a waterfowl spread, and that's not what you want. You only need a very few decoys. You don't need a whole waterfowl spread out there whenever you're hunting turkeys.
1: And and like Mary said, um, decoys can be handy, but over the years, there've been times when I think, gosh, I wish I had brought a decoy with me. It would have made a difference. And then there've been times I had a decoy and I would say, gosh, I wish I didn't have that decoy out. Um, But one of the things about decoys is it's extra motion too. You have to take a, and I am a very I, I try to be very stealthy in my movement to get set up and um, and you've got to put that decoy where a turkey can see it. And also if if I've gotten, I, I like to get close and if I've gotten that close to the decoy, I, I kind of hate having to back away from where I put the decoy. But having said all that, there is a time and place for decoys. Um, so. One of the, the best ways to um, really introduce new people to, to hunting is to, to, especially with kids who aren't really still, is to have a little pop-up blind that you've have, you have know, out near an opening like a food plot or a power line or whatever, where there's, um, the, the gobblers can see for a long way. And when that's the case, you don't need a lot, like Mary said, um, just putting up a hen sometimes is enough or maybe a hen and a Jake, um, but I, I have and like like turkey calls. I've played with a bunch of them. I played with those decoys where they have tail fans that move that you pull a string and move. Um, years and years ago, I actually took a mounted gobbler out in a pasture and had a gobbler come running into it. That thing was hard to handle, but but did it. So we've all played with them, but to me the the time that um, I think that the use of decoys is best is when you have an open area where they can see them and you're sitting there. It could be river bottoms with a little blind there, or it could be on the edge of, of fields. And that's where it's really most um, useful, I think. Um, and the decoys, I wanted to just show you a couple of these. These are some of my favorites. These are the Avian X decoys. They're They came out with these a a few years ago and they really look like turkeys and as Mary was saying you have to be you want to be careful with the use of these to be safe. Um, So that's another thing. I do most of my hunting on private lands but I do a little on public lands. I don't use decoys on public lands. You can and you can do it safely as she mentioned, but I don't do it. Um, And the decoys have come a long way and, and Mary Lynn was talking about the foam ones here's a real old one from many years ago It's just a, a shape and you i mean it's flat you can stick it in your vest it's easy and you just stick your hand inside and open it up and stick a, the stick in there for it and not real attractive you know if so if you're a gobbler out there do you do you want to come to to this henny penny or how about this one she's sexier looking <laughs>
4: Uh, another thing on decoys I wanted to touch on is, and they do this out west uh, a little bit more than what they do in the easterns or in the mountain birds, is a technique called fanning. Uh, There's several different ways to do fanning. There's umbrellas that look like turkeys. There's actual feathers. So whenever you kill a turkey, you can actually take their fan and turn it into a fan to where you can open it up, um, spread it out and everything. So there's different tools out there for fanning. Fanning is an out west thing. You have to check your DNR regulations. There are some areas that it is illegal to fan a turkey. The reason why is because in uh, open areas where the Rios are and the Miriams are and it's flat plains, somebody will be fanning a turkey and you're going to have that Joe Bob down the road come out and, and, and shoot at it. So they have kind of gotten stricter down on fanning now. So that being said, Fanning can be a rush for a bird. So technique of fanning is you have that fan in front of you and that's your decoy and it's hiding your motion. You might have a diaphragm call and you're actually crawling out to this bird and you are actually moving that fan. And if you watch a turkey when he struts, he blows up and he'll sit there and and kind of rotate, kind of slowly move around. He's trying to impress that hint. So when you're coming in and you're fanning, you're moving that Fan around to, to kind of mimic that same motion of what that gobbler is doing, and that another gobbler will see that and see that as a threat and come into that fan. So, and you'll see videos of where people are making four yard shots, five yard shots because these turkeys are coming in running. Now, I've been successful doing that on Rios and Miriams. I've never done it on Easterns. I have friends that say it could be done, but I've just never done it on an Eastern yet. Um, I would like to try it on an Eastern, but it can be a rush if you think fan one in. And I've seen uh, where sometimes they'll respond to that fan because they're seeing a motion and they won't respond to a call. They might have been overcalled to. They might be nervous of a hen decoy. But that fan, because their testosterone is up, they want to come in and beat that gobbler up. And sometimes they'll just take off running. It's more of an early morning, or, or not an early morning, excuse me, early season type of decoy is what you want to use as your gobblers or a jake. A jake decoy is kind of more of an early season decoy than a late season decoy. In my opinion, that's kind of how I do it. Late season, I'll use a single hen or maybe a pair of hens.
2: Raylene, can you talk a little bit about maybe the biology or the reason why you would use a jake early in the season and not late? Like what's driving that gobbler to respond?
4: His testosterone is a little bit higher in early season than in late season. So he's he's bred more in late season. So he might not be as excited in late season. Plus, he's probably been pressured. So, a Jake in early season, he's still, they're still fighting. You'll see him fighting and spurring. And, and Rios and Miriams might be a little bit different, but I hunt mostly Eastern. So, what I've noticed with my Easterns, they're in early season. They'll be fighting, they'll still be in their fighting moods, sparring, um, you know, and they'll come in more to a Jake. You know, he's the big boss Tom. He doesn't want that wimpy-looking little Jake, and I've even got a decoy called the Ugly Chicken because it's just this little scrawny-looking, little ugly-looking Jake thing Um, because they see that Jake as a threat coming in to breed his hens, and because he is the dominant gobbler, he will move in on that Jake um, versus, you know, if you had an actual full fan gobbler out there. May, he might not be as dominant the way he'll take on a full fan gobbler, but if he sees a Jake, and a Jake, I don't know if we discussed this, when a Jake fans out, his feathers stand up higher in the center than the rest of the feathers do. So when he fans out, he's recognized as a Jake, and that Tom will come in being a dominant boss gobbler to beat that Jake up because he wants all the hens to himself because he's greedy. So um, that's kind of why I like Jake's more in early season, Then late season, late season, I've I've kind of ran into the issue. If I put a tom decoy out or a Jake decoy out, that it will uh, sometimes spook a bird off. Versus if I've just got a lone decoy, like a lone hen standing out there, it might not spook him as much.
1: I agree with the with using just a, a hen decoy later in particular. Great advice, Pat. Do you
2: have anything to input on decoys?
3: the west? You know, if if I carry a decoy, it's a single hen, and um, I think a lot of the advice about the safety stuff is, and I'll bring that up a little bit later when we get to safety stuff in particular, but uh, I, I think people need to make a conscious decision about whether or not you use a decoy, so... And I would also agree that later on in the season, a lot of the hens are already sitting on a nest. So a hen decoy late in the season, that might be one of his only opportunities. So a lot more likely to work.
2: Very good. All right. I am going to share my screen again because I'm going to do just a quick little presentation here on, oops, there we go, on non-toxic shot or non lead shot. So uh, one of the one of the things that Artemis really believes in, in the spirit of um, being a steward and protecting the resources that we enjoy is to leave it as good or better than we found it. And so by avoiding using lead in the field, that's one of the ways we can do that. And I just wanted to talk about non toxic options for turkey specifically. So Long ago, not that long ago, um, but historically, lead was really the only option. Um, it was the only thing available for you to buy if you were going to be shooting shot out of a shotgun. And lead, as we now know and have known for a few years, is toxic to all living organisms. So it's, it's problematic, right? You, you don't want to have it around you, really, and you certainly don't want to be spreading it um, around on the landscape. And in fact, it was used for so long that now it's concentrated in some parts of the landscape at um, popular hunting spots, or you know, a lot of fishing tackle is still lead. So even lead hunting, or excuse me, popular fishing spots also have um, concentrations of lead. And the, the reason that lead is such a problem specifically for wildlife is that it directly poisons things like songbirds, ducks and geese, Um, as well as upland birds like doves. And this is because those little tiny lead pellets look like food to those birds. a lot of those birds eat food, seeds, things like that that kind of look similar Um, and birds don't really have a sense of smell. So they're not gonna be discerning it based on much else besides feel in the case of ducks or um, vision in the case of other birds. So they'll eat that shot, die from it. Um, And then birds of prey also can be poisoned by consuming discarded gut piles um, from game that was harvested with lead um, or eating wounded animals that maybe were not recovered, but um, died after the fact. So it's bad stuff. Um, In 1991, there was a national ban on using the lead shot for waterfowl hunting. um, Again, because it was accumulating in specifically in wetlands, where dabbling ducks would just bop under the surface and eat it. And the the ammunition industry responded by producing steel shot. And steel shot is great. A lot of hunters have actually overcome some of the problems with it when it was initially introduced and are just as effective with it now as they were with lead previously. But steel as a metal is lighter than lead, and so it lacks some of the killing power that lead had, and it is a shorter range. So next on the scene was tungsten, and I think Kathy, you pulled a TSS load out of your vest earlier. Um, tungsten is really, I think, was a game changer for turkeys, especially. This is just a picture of a TSS load, tungsten load here, a box for a 20 gauge. Really the advantages are that it's actually heavier and more dense than lead. So it has, you know you can shoot farther um, with more takedown power and you can do that with smaller shells. So a lot of times you'd have to use like three and a half inch shells if you really wanted to push lead far out there um, and that's gonna produce a lot of recoil on your gun. So you can shoot tungsten loads that are smaller, two and three quarter inch or even a three inch um, loads that can take turkeys relatively far away um, in the field. And for a lot of women, this, is, this was great because now you can use a 20 gauge to take down a turkey whereas before there was a lot of controversy about whether that was effective or not. Um, so if you wanna carry around a lighter shotgun, especially if you're doing the kind of mobile hunting that a lot of the women on this webinar have described they like to do, uh, saving some weight on your gun, I think would be, would be great. Now, tungsten is pretty expensive. Um, it's often double, sometimes even a little bit more, the price of lead. But you're not taking a duck hunting. You're not going to blow through a case in a weekend. Really, a box or two could get you through a whole season of turkey hunting, um, especially if you do a couple of really important things. One, pattern your shotgun before you go out. And I think somebody's going to talk about this at some point in the call tonight. But patterning your shotgun is, it's as important as sighting in a big game rifle. So you need to do that. And then you need to practice with the same ammunition that you hunt with. So you could pattern your shotgun with steel shot. And once you get comfortable with the pattern, send some tungsten loads through it to verify that they're performing the same. And then you can be confident when you go into the field. And that's it. So I know that was really quick. That was not like a super exciting um, thing, but I wanted us to touch on it. Next, we have Pat who's going to talk about where to aim on a turkey when you're trying to harvest one. And she's going to talk a little bit more about that hunter safety
3: um, when you're in the field, I think
2: specifically on public land.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, and do you have those slides too? And uh, I, I feel kind of like the dork at the party because um, kathy and mary got to talk about all the fun stuff and i get to talk about being safety conscious but uh one of the things i used to do was i was the hunter safety administrator for colorado parks and wildlife and and i um and i've always just had a real strong hunting ethic and i i don't think there's any turkey or any deer or anything that's more important than your safety and i also think that we owe it to whatever it is we're hunting to um, make a clean ethical one-shot kill if if at all possible. And um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that as it relates to turkey hunting tonight. Um, one of the things you'll notice about, you know, Kathy and Mary when they were going through their calls too is the interesting names that some of them have. This particular call is called the mother clucker. And I thought, how, how uh, unique is that? They have some really interesting things they come up with. But um, I wanna focus on what makes turkey hunting unique from a safety perspective and give you some tips that'll help you um, navigate that a little bit. I'm gonna talk a little bit about patterning a shotgun, where to aim and at the very end of this, I'm gonna give you a little quiz on shot selection. So if I can have the next slide, I wanna talk about what makes turkey hunting unique. And um, all of this has been talked about, but you're in in the woods in full camo carrying a gun, oftentimes you might be using a, a decoy and sitting somewhere behind it. Um, you're in the spring when turkeys are talkative and you're talking like a turkey. Um, and so I, I think it's important to realize that you're, there are a lot of confounding factors here. And about 25 to 30 percent of all hunting accidents are, are during the tur- spring turkey season. So that's that's a pretty high number. Now, most of those are, are not very serious and hunting overall is super safe. So we ne- also need to apply that filter. But when you can make a few little changes to make yourself more safe, why not do it? So um, if I can have the next slide, I want to talk about the quarry for a second. We You saw this slide earlier, but one of the things that's unique about him is he's got that red, white, and blue head and black feathers. Um, and All of your safety rules apply that you already know, the 10 commandments of firearm safety or um, Tab K, whatever you use. But, um, you know, the most important thing when turkey hunting, I think, is to be sure of your target, what's beyond it and what's in front of it. We just saw a photo of a turkey hunter sitting behind a decoy. Um, The other thing I think to think about in the spring, in particular, is, um, you know, uh, a lot of people, will shoot a, shoot a hen turkey and, and, or not a lot of people, a few people will shoot a hen turkey by accident and, um, and say they thought it was a tom because its head looked pink. Well, the bottom line is in the spring, you need to see that beard on a turkey. And so we want people to be extra cautious. And I'll take the next slide. So when you're walking in or if you set up somewhere, it's not a bad idea to have orange um, wear that orange as you're walking in if you can hang it in a tree or hang it in an area behind you if you're getting set up if you have the time the other thing I mentioned is that turkey's head red red white and blue and then black feathers those are colors I avoid during turkey season don't wear red bandana around your neck um, it just doesn't make good sense so the next slide I've only got a couple more safety rules and then we can start talking about patterning and shot placement so the other thing if you're going to sit down and call uh, you could call a turkey hunter in um, like Kathy said sometimes the people that call are call better than the turkeys that call and so there's the possibility that there's another hunter um, and you could call that person in so um, have a tree at your back that is wider than your back in case somebody comes in behind you um, I already mentioned if you're looking for um if you are the one being called in if you're coming into you hear a turkey and you're coming into that make sure that you're doing um proper identification right is it moving um don't just shoot at noise don't just shoot at something that looks like a turkey make sure there's nothing beyond it um if you call in another hunter don't don't wave your hand or something like that. That su- sudden movement may um, cause them to do something you don't want to do. And then um, I always carry a some orange or something too in case you shoot a turkey. You, ha- you can wrap that turkey up in the orange and take it out. So um, this is the where to aim part. And there's there might be a little bit of disagreement, but generally, uh, the shotgun pellets kind of uh, will go up a little bit. So I like to hold a little low on the neck, like right where the neck and the feathers come together. That gives me the kill zone. And I'm only gonna talk about shotgun, Emily. I'm not gonna go into too much bow hunting shot placement because it's entirely different. But um, the, the kill zone on a turkey is the central nervous system. So it's basically the spine and the brain So we wanna make sure that we maximize the number of pellets going into that area of the turkey. Um, Some hunters will hold a little bit higher than that. And I know a few hunters will hunt a little bit lower than that. Um, But I think the thing that makes that neck and the feathers where they come together particularly attractive for me is it's an easy easy thing to see and an easy thing to put your sights on. The one thing you don't wanna do is cover up the A turkey's head with the barrel of your shotgun. You for sure want to be able to see the bead on your shotgun and the turkey's head above it. So I'll take the next slide and I'll talk about patterning a little bit. Um, So the purpose of patterning, and there's a number of resources online and so I'm not going to get too detailed into how to do it. But what you want to do is put the maximum number of pellets into the vital area of a turkey. And so what you see here, um, the other thing you want to do is when you do pattern your shotgun, you want to make sure that you're sitting down at about the same distance you plan on killing a turkey. And so for me, that's you know 40 yards. And I take a look at it, and I might back up to 25 and just see what my pattern is doing as well but what you want to do is have a lot of pellets in the head and the neck. This is a really good pattern. Um, let's take a look at the next pattern. And you can see that in this particular pattern, there's a nice pattern with the pellets, but the, the bead is off, right? Our point of impact is off. That's, that's not going to kill a turkey. And the next pattern we can see that pattern has a nice spread, but if you count the number of pellets that are actually inside the head of that turkey, there's maybe one or two, most of the shot is outside of the head of that turkey. So that pattern is not a good pattern for um, for hunting turkey. So you could do a couple of things. You could try a different choke, you could try a different shot, um, but that is not what I would call an ideal setup or an ideal Pattern for hunting turkeys. So if we're ready, we're going to play shot or not. Okay, um, everybody knows where the reactions are. Can they give thumbs up? Is this a good shot or not? With a shotgun. Somebody's saying not, um, and I don't know. Can panel or can our attendees speak?
2: They cannot speak,
3: um, but they we they can raise their hand. So I've seen that someone's raised their hand. OK. So uh, Kathy's got her hand up. Kathy, what do you think? Would you take this shot?
2: Maybe we can do it in the chat, because while okay. I'm screen sharing, I'm afraid to hit any button. OK. Take
3: that, the- that's that's all right. I'll be the spoiler alert then. So t- to me, um, this one, this one here could be a good shot. What you want is you want that head extended so that you have the whole whole neck and the head of the turkey to shoot at. So that could be a pretty decent shot. Let's take the next one. Hands up if this is a good shot. Okay. And I hear a lot of no's and a lot of knots. And I would agree with you. And, and there's a couple of reasons here, right? One is that we have two birds together. The other thing is, is you can tell this isn't just a blurry photo. These birds were on the move. And so um, you've got a little tiny target, you know, smaller than the size of your fist that's rapidly moving. That um, is probably not going to be a good shot. All right, one more or two more, I think. Okay, what about this one? Shot or not? Nope. Nope. Okay, lots of nopes. So when a turkey, depends on how close, so when a turkey is uh, fanned out and is strutting, a lot of times what they do is they also bring their head into their body so they actually shorten the length of their neck. And again, this is for for shotguns only because it's a little bit different with a bow. Emily's about ready to jump on me. I can tell she's giving me the stink eye over there in the corner, but they actually shorten the length of their neck. And so you don't have as good a shot as a head and the neck. And then the other thing is if this bird is facing you, you're going to damage a lot of the meat. And the other thing is I know none of us are supposed to be trophy hunters, but that big, beautiful fan, you're probably going to destroy with that shotgun blast as well when you... Um, you put a a bunch of shotgun pellets through the tail of your bird. So I think we have one more. What about this one here? Shot or not? No. If in season. Okay. No, no. Shot. Yes. I don't see a beard. Okay. Selena nailed it. So the deal here is we've got a bird with a red head. I, I am making an assumption that is a Tom, Liana. I don't know if I said your name right, but, but you're right. We can't see a beard. So in the spring, that bird may not be legal. And I, I, uh, another thing I did, God, I must be super old. Um, before this, I was a wildlife officer, a wildlife law enforcement officer. And I had somebody take a shot just like that. And it was a hen. And with the sun shining through her skin Um, she appeared to have a pink head and uh, a young man shot a hen turkey and so I think it's better to pass on that shot even though 99% sure that's a tom like the rest of you in the fall is that a shot or not that in the fall when any sex bird is uh is legal it is so thank you emily for that and you guys are really good at this i was trying to mess you up just a little bit and they're way too smart ashley
2: well that's good we got some high quality participants here all right so we are now going to move over to emily who is our lone archery hunter for (laughs) turkeys, and she is going to talk about that um Emily, I have your pictures, so just let me know if yeah. you
1: want
0: me to share them. Okay, well I can expand on Pat's talk about, and no I was not, definitely was not <laughs> worried over here Pat. Um, but shooting archery turkeys is a li- definitely a little bit different than shooting uh, shotgun turkeys, just because even the places you aim are different. So personally, just because I want to make sure that it is the best possible shot. I only shoot when the turkey is broadside and I just, and I actually aim for right above the thigh. Um, and that's generally the, one of the largest areas that you can actually hit on a turkey with a, an arrow. But I do know a lot of people who will shoot them if they're facing you, they'll shoot them basically aiming right for the beard, the middle of the beard, which is a good one. It'll actually get them in the chest or others will actually shoot them in the butt. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of different differences between um, archery hunting turkeys and shotgun hunting turkeys. But um, the, the main thing that you'll wanna do is just make sure you practice, practice, practice and make sure that that shot is going to be perfect because you don't wanna injure them. I mean, turkeys are so fast. And the other thing is, is their eyesight is so good that once you, once you are shooting with, an, with a bow, they'll see you pull, they'll see you draw. I mean, you're literally just drawing back and they see everything. So the minute that that arrow gets going, sometimes they'll jump it. Sometimes they'll move, sometimes, you know, I mean, it's just, it's a lot, it's really hard because you can't not move when you're shooting your bow. Um, So just practice, 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 make sure your groups are super, super, super good before you even get out there with a bow. and I'm not going to lie. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's um, as my husband would actually say, he thinks it's impossible. Um, but he also knows that it's not. It's just very hard. It's fun. It's just amazingly fun. You run around the woods looking for turkeys. You can have decoys if you want. If you don't, that's fine too. You can spot and stalk. A lot of people will also use blinds um, just because they they can't see you as well if you are in a blind Um it with your bow, um, but it's just it's just so fun as as everybody else is talking about. I just I absolutely love it. And um, from a from a what I go in the field with gear like a gear wise, I definitely make sure that my broadheads are ready to go. I personally just use the exact same broadheads that I use for big game. Um, nothing different there. I do know people who don't use as heavy of a broadhead for turkeys. Um, I just use the same setup that I use all year round, just because I know that I'm shooting well. I know that I've been practicing with that setup. I know in that way. Um, and I just make sure that everything is consistent as, and as consistent as possible when I get into the field. Um, and then from a bow perspective, as Ashley mentioned, I shoot with the trad bow. I have a lot of friends that I, that I hunt with that shoot with compounds. That's everybody has their preference. I only shoot with the trad bow because that's Again, just what I'm used to and what I love, and and it's just my my way of doing it. But there's no wrong way of doing it. Um, I'll make this short, and I'll only share one story. But Ashley can share a few pictures of this. We did. A, I was just going to tell you a really quick story of a of a hunt we did last year, and it was a pack raft turkey hunt. Uh, mixing it up a little bit. Um, Pat, you even might know exactly where this is. (laughs) Um, There's a, uh, this is is in Colorado. Um, There's a piece of land that is surrounded by private on both sides with the exception of a lake. So a couple of us went um, in pack rafts across the lake to hunt turkeys. And it was just, uh, to be completely honest with you, it was so fun. I was actually super pregnant in this picture. Um, You can't see my belly though, but I was (laughs) pregnant and hunting. And um, it was just amazing to get out there and pack rafts and go across the lake and hear all of the turkeys gobbling, like crazy echoing on the lake and watching the sun come up and then getting over to the other side to actually get no not even a sight of a turkey, but the experience was just fun. And that's just why I love turkey hunting. So I'll end it there. So I don't blabber your faces off with my stories. But if you have any questions, feel free to ask about hunting with with bows.
2: Emily, thank you so much. Once again, oh, I think no we problem. could have done an entire event on <laughs> hunting, archery hunting turkeys. Um, yeah. That was great. Okay, so we have a few minutes left. We are now gonna move back to Pat. She is gonna walk us through storytelling, how to tell a good story. This is important for any hunter, whether you're good or not. Um, But it's especially important to our audience tonight because as I mentioned earlier on the call, we are going to be having a storytelling contest as part of this series of events. So pay attention, get your story good and ready. And, yeah, maybe
3: you can win something fun. Pat, take it away. Yeah, Emily, so just so you know, I, I think that photograph, if I've got the right place, is only about 10 miles from my house,
2: Probably.
3: So that's, that's <laughs> kind of funny. Um,
0: um, we're gonna do it again this year, so if you want to go,
3: let me know. <laughs> I, I have a ducky, so we'll, we'll talk about that, so um, I, w- I wanted to talk about storytelling. For one thing, I got so excited when Ashley said you guys are going to do a storytelling contest. Cause I, I think that the history of storytelling and hunting go hand in hand. And the other thing that I feel so strongly about storytelling is because that I think that ethical hunters tell the best stories. Who wants to tell a story about how you cheated your way and, and, and killed something. The only great stories are told by ethical hunters, which is what you all are all about and what Artemis is all about. And so I think that this is gonna be an incredible opportunity. And even those of you that are really shy and don't like being in the spotlight, I would encourage you to tell a story. Um, So I'll go to the next, next slide. And I think that the other thing about storytelling is you don't have to kill a big bird. You don't have to kill any bird at all. Sometimes the best stories are the, the goofy things you did, um, you know, or the, the dumb things that happened along the way. Um, the, the fact that you went out and forgot your turkey call or something like that. The important thing about storytelling, what it does, is it creates an emotional bond with people, which is that next slide. Um, and so if I ask some of you, um, I'm sorry, Ash. There we go. So, if I asked some of you, why do you love your dog? Um, I would doubt that very many of you, or why do you love your husband, or why did you know, uh, but why do you love your dog? I don't tell people, well, he's black and he doesn't shed and he's potty trained. You know, I love Poncho because when, when I rub his neck, he leans into me and goes, "Mm," and when he does that, it makes me feel good inside. I, it just like makes me warm all the way to my toes. And that's the reason we tell stories is to make that emotional connection. How many of you could relate to my poncho story again? Let's, you know, raise your hands or whatever. But, um, I think most of us can relate to those emotions that go into having a, um, A dog or telling a great hunting story. So um, let's go to the next one. And I think the most important thing to think about when you start telling a story is how do you want people to feel when you're done? Do you want them to approve of hunting? Um, Do you want them to try hunting? Do you want them to go out and become a better hunter? Uh, Or do you want them to do you want them to um, go out and maybe do a call to action and help the environment? But, um, I think there are a number of reasons to tell those stories, but sometimes people tell stories that really have the opposite effect, right? They turn people off. Why do any of us need to be telling a story that turns people off? Let's tell stories that turn people on. And so this next slide is just about how the story goes. Um, first, there's you, right? And you uh, you talk about you and you talk about you in the first person and what kind of person you are. Um, and then something happens, the event. Um, you're getting up to go turkey hunting, you're going up early, whatever that is. Um, but something happens and and that's where the story starts, right? What, what was the conflict there? How was it different than your reality? Like everybody thinks you're gonna tell the, you know, the, the lady with the fish photo, right? Um, that's not the story. The story was all the other stuff that happened. So how did you struggle? How did you deal with that situation? What were you feeling? Were you angry? You know, were you scared? Um, did, it, did it make you happy? Were you surprised? Um, those kind of emotions are what really um, give people that emotional connection. And surprisingly enough, what people relate to the, the best is, is surprise, whether that comes from success or failure. Um, and then the last part of that, right, is the moral of the story. What did you learn? How did that change you? Or... or what? You know, how did that change you or what you think? Um, and so with that, I just want to to say the last slide. I think the, the moral of the story here is that your ability to connect with people is, is not dependent on you being a great hunter. It's about you getting in the woods and trying new things and showing courage and being surprised and scared and happy and all of those things that make you a great human being. Um, Weave in a lesson that will affect the people that you're telling the story to. So that lesson can be something really simple, as as much as like. So I learned, I always pack my hunting pack the night before, right? Or I learned, um, you know, I now look at this. And and the other thing is, I think sometimes our stories, um, it's the little things that make a big, a big. Big difference on people. It's it's not the big huge things that happen. It's the little things that happen along the way that make make the best stories. And um, this is a, a photograph of a, a women's only deer hunt that I was lucky enough to be along in Oklahoma. And I didn't know any of these women at all. I had never met any of them. And and talk about the stories that we ended up telling. By the time it was over, it was an excellent. Um, opportunity. And I, I encourage all of you to take part in Ashley's storytelling contests or else I'll come and beat them all up for you, Ashley. And I will also answer in the chat. Somebody asked about tab K, um, the, the four safety rules tab K. So I can type that in the chat or I can answer that briefly. Um, what do you prefer Ashley?
2: Yeah, go ahead and answer. We actually are gonna move to Q and A now. So that is timely.
3: Okay, Um, so tab K, and uh, it's T-A-B-K. And it's just another way to remember what I consider the four primary safety rules. If you remember these four, you'll never have a hunting accident. So T is treat every firearm like it's loaded. A is always keep the muzzle pointed in a safe direction. B is be sure of your target, what's beyond it and in front of it. And then the last one, does anybody know what this is here? I call this your, just some people call it your pointer finger, your index finger. I call it your damn finger. And you need to keep your damn finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot, right? So those are the the four safety rules, tab K. Very good. All
2: right, we have just a literally four minutes um, for q and I know that's not enough, um, but I want to respect our presenters' time that they were generous enough to donate for this event. Um, so if you do have a question, please put it in the Q&A um, and I will put it up there. I know there's one question that's been up there for a while. Um, somebody that came in a little bit late want to know if there was any input on Osceola's. So if anybody can speak to that, go for it. Wish what, I could. what was the
4: question about Osceola's?
2: Yeah, what do you know about Osceola's, basically?
4: oh, They're the smaller eastern, and they're a swamp turkey is what they call them, because usually you're going to find them in the swamps. Uh, this is my nemesis at the moment, is chasing an Osceola, because that's all I have left. There's There's different slams. There's a Grand Slam and a World Slam. A world slam is when you get your ghouls and your oscillated that she showed you earlier. Your grand slams when you get your eastern, your miriams, your rio, and your osceola. So all I have left is osceola, but uh, yeah, they're, they're a smaller eastern. Um, they have a, a uh, they, they act a lot like an eastern does, but they're just a smaller population. Um, from my experience and talking to a lot of the guys that hunt osceolas, they gobble a lot in the trees in the morning. And when they hit the ground, they usually like to shut up a little bit. So they're not gonna to be too talkative. Like a Rio or a Miriams really like to talk They really like to gobble. Easterns and Osceolas can be quiet and down. And I think that's due to environment. Uh, Osceolas and Easterns are in mountains, swamps. Um, it's not as open. They can't see as well sometimes. So I think a lot of the time, maybe sometimes it's uh, to, to protect themselves. They're not gonna talk as much or gobble as much just because they can't see around that ridge could be a coyote over there, it could be a predator over there, Uh, swamp, you know, the the swamp birds or the Osceolas, uh, anything could be on them because it is a lot thicker area. So I think that's kind of why easterns and Osceolas are thought to be a little bit harder to hunt. Uh, They're not as talkative as what a Rio or a
2: Miriam's would be, and that's just from my experience. Awesome. Thank you, Mary. Is a 410 TSS load effective for turkeys? can speak to that.
1: Yes it is Um, and part of it is just a matter of uh, making sure that you're comfortable with your shotgun the 410 the 20 gauge whatever it is Um, so yes you can take a turkey with TSS with a a 410 and probably do it as as far out as we used to be able to do it with a 20 gauge with your traditional um, um, shells. So the main thing there is go out and practice ahead of time Although TSS is expensive, it's still important to know where you're gun shooting.
2: Awesome. Well, we have a lot more questions, but unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank everyone for joining us, especially our panelists. Thank you so much. I want to remind everyone that we have the Slack channel, so Q and A to your heart's desire there. Um, Our experts might be able to tune in and answer that. Or I know there's a lot of women just in the community on this call that have a lot of knowledge. Um, So share that with one another. But thank you all so much for joining. Like I said, we got to respect everybody's time. So we're going to cut it off. But we will send out a recording of this as well as the chat. Um, So hopefully you can connect with some women in your area. Kathy and Pat, thank you so much. Uh, Mary and Emily already had to jump off. But um, you guys were great.